This is Black Agenda Radio, a weekly hour of African-American political thought and action. Welcome to the radio magazine that brings you news, commentary, and analysis from a black left perspective. I'm Margaret Kimberly, along with my co-host, Glenn Ford. More and more these days, we hear activists describe themselves as black anarchists. But what is black anarchism? And a black author based in Europe says we all need to cultivate and make use of our sensuous knowledge. But first, the white supremacist assault on the U.S. Capitol was aided and abetted by police officers. So says Mara Verhaden Hilliard, co-founder of the Washington-based Partnership for Civil Justice. The partnership is demanding a fully public investigation into the way the cops responded to the massing of President Trump's followers at the Capitol. African Americans are near universally agreed that had black people stormed the U.S. Congress in such a manner, police would have used deadly force against them. That is completely true and obvious to, I think, so many of us who have participated in demonstrations, including explicitly at the Capitol. I have represented many people who have been arrested at the Capitol, including people who had no intention of getting arrested. We're not just talking about civil disobedience. I mean, there have been instances after instances where the Capitol Police come out in full riot gear. They have all of the material at their disposal. They have the riot gear, they have the weaponry, they have the tactics, they have the personnel. And so we can only conclude what is plain here, which is that this could not have happened if the Capitol Police did not allow it to happen. I mean, we know that if there was that number of people who had come to the Capitol and and had attempted to enter the Capitol en masse, and that was a black-led effort, this would have been a massacre. Yes, and we even read that police officers inside the Capitol, when elements of the mob were inside with them, were fraternizing with the Trump people. Right. There are the images of them taking selfies. There are the images outside of the Capitol Police very calmly turning and allowing the barricades to open and the violent mob to flow through and then storm inside the building. The police were actually, after the violent mob was looting offices, was allowing them to walk out and walk free with their trophies. Not only did they not stop them from getting inside, they didn't arrest them and allowed these hundreds of marauding, violent white supremacists to ransack the nation's capital. And we need to be clear that they were white supremacists. I mean, they came in with a Confederate flag. They were raising it throughout the building. They raised it over the building. I mean, this is a terrorist, treasonous flag. And the Capitol Police were allowing this to happen. Now, that's not to say that there weren't individuals in the Capitol Police who you know, maybe we're taken off guard, but I think we need to be clear here that there was obviously a determination made, and not just by line officers, there had to be a determination made at a fairly high level 
that this was going to be the response. I'm, I'm seeing in the mainstream media these references to the Capitol Police being unprepared or caught off guard. That's not true. In, in our two decades of litigation, we have over and over again seen the very, very sophisticated operation that occurs every time that law enforcement in D.C. knows there's going to be an event in D.C. There is very comprehensive planning, operations manuals, coordination, mutual aid agreements. They are completely prepared for these events when they happen. So the only way that this could be the way it is is a decision was made. And we are also quite aware that these right-wing white supremacist organizations have found plenty of recruits and collaborators in U.S. police departments. We have, and that's actually another initiative that we're undertaking. So right now, in addition to demanding an investigation into the violent attack on the Capitol and police collusion with this white supremacist mob, we are undertaking our own investigation at the Partnership for Civil Justice Fund. We are, as of today, we have filed uh, records demands throughout federal agencies and the District of Columbia government because we intend to get to the bottom of this. We feel we must expose these actors within the government law enforcement departments. And we are also initiating a nationwide project where we are working with other folks who care about these issues around the country because we are intent on rooting out the white supremacist and malicious sympathizers inside the nation's police forces. I mean, this right now poses an enormous threat to communities. Donald Trump thinks that he has a standing army that he can call out in any time, even while he's in, you know, quote-unquote exile. And we have to take action. Police have said, and journalists apparently believe them, that the mob inside the Capitol could only be arrested for trespassing. Do you think that's true? Well, that's not true. There are federal laws on the books that would allow for greater penalties and charges. But honestly, even if they wanted to arrest them for trespassing, they could arrest them for trespassing, and they didn't arrest them for trespassing. So regardless of the level and nature of charges that are present, the police had probable cause to arrest. They chose not to arrest. And the charges anyway, no matter what you're arrested for, the prosecutors can level whatever charges they wish to level later. And here, one need only look at the federal charge of seditious conspiracy to see that these rioters meet those standards, um, as does the president of the United States. Now, around the country, the federal government is trying to assess grand juries and riot charges, federal riot charges, against racial justice demonstrators. Well, if they're looking for a, a federal riot, they had one at the most iconic federal institution in the United States, and they are not taking action. To put this in perspective, after Baltimore, in terms of the trajectory of the Black Lives Matter movement, after Baltimore, we started seeing people who were accused of throwing rocks, were charged with draconian offenses that could buy them 10, 20 years in prison? Well, right now, at this very moment, racial justice activists in Denver 
who were and have been leaders of the movement for justice for Elijah McClain, who was brutally murdered by Colorado cops, they have been charged with multiple felonies and 50 years in prison because they demonstrated outside of a police precinct. They didn't go in. They didn't threaten to go in. They didn't break anything. They literally demonstrated outside a police precinct. And they are now being charged with what is essentially life in prison sentences. That tells us everything about the nature of the prosecutions in the country right now. And we know that left and black organizations are subjected to many levels of surveillance. Surveillance in terms of infiltration and all kinds of electronic surveillance and surveillance of all kinds. Yet these white supremacist groups operate in the open. Presumably, they're under surveillance too. Well, again, when the Capitol Police and you know are, are somehow suggesting that they were unprepared or didn't expect this, these groups had been very publicly posting on public social media their intentions to come to the district to commit acts of violence. They were bragging that they were going to be smuggling weapons into the district, and they chose not to do anything about it. I mean, in the District of Columbia, we have what the gun recovery unit, the GRU, which notoriously stomps through black communities and neighborhoods, shaking down black men, yelling, show us your waistband, committing unconstitutional searches. And here you have these white supremacists who say they're coming to D.C. with illegal weapons. Well, where was the gun recovery unit? Like, we didn't hear them chasing down these hundreds and thousands of of demonstrators and yelling, you know, show me your waistband proud boy. Right. And these people came from out of state carrying these weapons and to carry out their plans. If that were a left or black group, there would be federal involvement. Right. And that's where the federal riot charges come into play. It's the crossing state lines. But that's not the interest here. I mean, over and over again, this incident demonstrates with complete clarity the nature of all the claims about law and order. This has nothing to do with law and order. This has to do with the political nature of a group, and it has to do with the police's role in suppressing black and brown and working class communities. These people came, they were white supremacists, they were armed, they were dangerous, they said they were coming, everyone knew they were coming, the police knew they were coming, they were public about their attentions, they stormed the Capitol, and they were given a free pass. And I'm sure that you're not in any way trying to encourage the passage of more and the stronger enforcement of existing laws that limit freedom of speech. Well, that's what's so important here. That's why we have to actually talk about what the police did and did not do. See, this concept that they were unprepared or they didn't have what they needed is going to be used by those who wish to repress actual First Amendment protected activity and say, well, we need stronger laws, we need more prosecution. That's not the case. This is, shows the selective nature of what they call law and order. And we have to be able to really stand up and fight back and say, 
This happened because the police allowed it to happen. It didn't happen because they didn't have the arsenal of weapons or the person power at their disposal. They did this because they wanted to allow it to happen. It did not have to happen. And in fact, right now in Florida, Governor DeSantis is seizing his own base's actions at the Capitol to try and impose extremely draconian anti-protest laws in Florida, which are part and parcel of a massive attack across the country where right-wing legislators are introducing anti-protest laws that are targeted at the racial justice and the environmental justice movement. And you're asking for a full and public investigation, but an investigation by whom? Well, I think it's important to make these demands, and all the public bodies that have the capacity to investigate should be forced to investigate, because the failure to do so and the public failure to do so and the cover-up is very, very demonstrative. That's why we are simultaneously undertaking our own investigation. Um, We will be litigating to get the documents, to get the information that the public is entitled to see that will expose what happened here. We seem to be looking at two different pictures of this incident. On one hand, we have what people saw with their eyes, that the police were very soft on these demonstrators and rioters. On the other hand, we have a picture painted, largely by Democrats, of an insurrection, a veritable revolution going on, an attempted against the government of the United States. Uh, Which one is it? There's no question that this was, you know, an attempted insurrection, that it meets the formal definition of seditious behavior. All of the things that the right wing and the president of the United States are always claiming they're, you know, such great, you know, quote-unquote patriots. But I think, again, you know, in many ways, that's a banner that these folks sort of hold proudly because they were all chanting and demanding, you know, the the slogans of, you know, give me liberty, give me death and the live free or die and all of that. I don't think they have a problem with being considered insurrection people that were carrying out those kind of activities. And that's why I think it's also really, really important to define them for what they are, that this is a white supremacist and fascist or neo-fascist mob. And we have to go after that on the level that it exists, and we have to do everything we can to, to expose it and to stop it. That was Mara Verhayden Hilliard, co-founder of the Partnership for Civil Justice in Washington, D.C. Ebony Seema Lee Outlaw is an Afro-Indigenous womanist, MC, poet, teacher, and photographer currently living in Baltimore. She also calls herself a black anarchist a description that has been adopted by growing numbers of black activists. We asked Ebony Simali Outlaw how she became attracted to black anarchism. I'm a black anarchist to be specific, a hip-hop anarchist to be even more specific, a maroon. Um, I'm originally from Norfolk, Virginia, Hampton Roads area, heavy community of basic history of resistance and rebellion. And some of my first teachings of black liberation movements were learning of slave rebellions, learning of the Maroons escaping into an area that I lived near, which was the Great Dismal Swamp. And just learning about community being created within a supremacist entity. And that always interested me as a youth. 
later on I would be in different formations from Pan-African socialist formations and Islamic communities that were internationalist, exposing me to different thoughts that, you know, were basically anti-capitalist, anti-imperialist, decolonial movements. I stumbled upon, like many youth, the Black Panther Party, but reading it extensively to see the different viewpoints than the normal viewpoints that were usually given of a Huey P. Newton or of a Bobby Seale. I wanted to know more about what the women and others in the party, their experiences, and those who also were men who didn't get as much attention. And I stumbled upon Ashanti Alston, Lorenzo Camboa, Kowasi Balagoon, and learned that there were black anarchists who very much wanted the end of imperialism, but chose to do so through a non-hierarchical methodology and not necessarily the central command vanguardism of the Panthers, doing it more in a collective, communal, horizontal, autonomous, sort of like the Zapatistas and other groups who fought within the system and created their own autonomous regions and zones. And it was very interesting to me. And these were viewpoints that I was not used to hearing. I was used to hearing one side and hearing what they were saying and, and, and how they were approaching organizing especially uh, Kowasi Balagoon and the Black Liberation Army uh, going underground, it appealed to me. And I began to read more and, you know, about Lucy Parsons and Peter Kropotkin and Emma Goldman. And it, it just, it, it grasped me. Sam Mba speaking about anarchism in Africa. It was just a different way to approach the same problem, which is the state and the heavy handedness of the state and imperialism and capitalism. And it was just a different way of doing things that appealed to me. So yes, I'm a black anarchist, but I did grow up in uh, Pan-African socialist traditions under Jamil Alamine's community, uh, the Uma movement, and other movements that were around at the time when I was a youth. So your anarchism is not a rejection of structure, but a rejection of black folks being ruled by structures that oppress. Absolutely. One of the things there's quite a bit of media talk right now as we watched the breach of the Capitol building, which looked more like an invitation, if you will, to me and to many people, a white supremacist invitation to just come on in. But one of the things they like to say was, look at this anarchy. Well, there are different definitions of anarchism or anarchy. What it doesn't mean is chaos or without order to those who practice anarchism. There are traditions and ideologies and understandings of how we can go about our organizing that will hopefully break down abuse from each other, from the high down to the low. One thing about anarchism is it's, it's very orderly. It's very much a lot of studying. A lot of cooperation and trust goes into being in these formations and groups that do things like mutual aid, direct action, stopping evictions, you know, any and everything. The eight-hour work day that is standard now came about through groups like the IWW and, and, and Lucy Parsons herself fighting in the streets and advocating for workers' rights, the unions. Uh, IWW was known as the big union uh, back in the day, and to this day it's still one of the largest anarchist formations there is. My problem has always been a lot of these formations, even the socialist formations that I would be with, for me, being a black African-centered person. It just wasn't enough of my community, of our input, of our history. 
So I've always been more leaning towards black anarchists and pan-African socialism as far as lessons of how our culture, our heritage, our history of resistance can take us into the future, to the liberation that we're all seeking on a global level. But definitely with order and definitely with planning and studying and you know, we can't just be individualist. I'm not an individual anarchist. I'm one who's looking out for the community and the overall welfare of our people. And part of your mode of study is the Maroon Podcast. Yes, yes. Marooncast is a good way. My background is also originally early childhood education. So an instructor, basically kindergarten on the way up to elementary, middle school. I found it even more rewarding, though, after I would teach at school, which is, you know, be in different group circles and book circles and teaching and, you know, courses and classes. And I've, I've gotten good with it over the years, different panels I've been on. What I always felt, though, after leading these groups and gatherings is that people didn't have a permanent space that they could go to. And as a result of that, I ended up forming my own organization. We had a house. It's called Maroon House. And Maroon Movement was the movement that we formed, basically, you know, to turn us from just, you know, disgruntled people into actual Maroons looking to escape into our own liberation. And so the podcast now, which is our newest iteration, is a way that we can do all the teachings and classes and, you know, events that we would have at the Maroon House that were centered on liberation and expression. We can entertain people now on the podcast and do video and interviews and audio to let people know more about our theories, our experiences, and also to invite other people to talk about their experiences. We're just trying to find a way to build community within a hostile environment so that we can reach to liberation. It just feels scattered sometimes. We're all over the place and we don't speak enough with each other and dialogue enough. So it's just a way to bridge the gap and be able to reach more people. It's, you know, as you know, <laughs> it's a great medium, podcast and interviews, a great medium to reach people. The term abolition is very much in use these days. They speak of prison abolition and abolition of the police, but you're an advocate of trans abolition. What's that? Well, many of the groups that are out now, there are lots of new black anarchist groups that are forming, like the Anarchatas. And they are trans-led. It's more about having a focus of people who have long been marginalized, marginalized genders, marginalized identities. Myself, I'm queer and, and I am gender non-conforming. And many of my peers are queer, gender non-conforming, trans. And we've been in many organizations where we were not centered oftentimes not even thought about our labor, intellectual labor, our work, our organizing, you know, was accepted, but we wouldn't be. So it's a way of focusing and centering on the needs and issues that we have within our community as black people that doesn't necessarily center so-called cis-hetero objectives. We live in a world where people are pushing and they want liberation and they don't want to be an afterthought to someone. It's the identity politics, if you will, of the Combahee River Collective that has pushed so many of us. Those women, many of them were also queer black women who had to center the oppression, the specific oppression against women and against queer. And the same thing with 
trans and gender non-conforming and non-binary black people within the movement who are radical saying that we've got to center ourselves as well because if not then our issues will never be addressed not by the white supremacist structures or within black structures that are heterosexual that look at us as an afterthought so it's about abolishing this dominant viewpoint if you will of just looking at things from one perspective of so-called heterosexuals and because we're all dealing with white supremacy and we're all dealing with capitalism and we all have multiple identities that are a part of what makes up who we are intersectionality if you will so it's just a restructuring so that everyone has a say so in their own liberation I was listening to one of your maroon casts, and you were talking about conspiracy theories among black folks and on the left. And you point out that there's often no reason to go there and probe secret cabals and conspiracies because there's all kinds of evil that's being perpetrated right out in the open. Yeah, I mean, basically... I think it's a means of escapism sometimes that people, you know, there there are long held traditions of information that have been passed down that are solid, that are sound, there are tactics, there are methodologies that we could be focusing on. And instead people will want to make up like, you know, like you said, conspiracy theories that, that have no relevance and no bearing on the actual work in our community. Someone will come up with a, conspiracy theory and spend all their time on that instead of what we're doing, passing out masks, passing out gloves, passing out hand sanitizer, talking to people about how to keep ourselves safe, how to build up community. People are hungry in our community. Hey, okay, we can make up a theory. We could talk all day about uh, conspiracies, but we could also go out and we could feed people in the tradition of mutual aid that has been around since the liberation of black people, who also black people who liberated themselves from slavery, we've always had to look out for each other and take care of our needs. Mutual aid is huge and it's a big part of what we do. And we don't have time to sit around and think about conspiracy theories, whether that's dealing with the colonizer or not, when there are things that we could do. We need land, we need bread, we need self-defense. Many of us are imprisoned. And even when we're trying to stop the abuses of us, such as all through this summer, you know, people organizing in the street with direct action, we had to battle Conspiracy theories. Oh, well, these people dressed in black, these Antifa, you know, they're really not on our side. And, you know, having to break it down to people, well, you know, anti-fascism just means no fascism. You do know that some of the earliest anti-fascist fighters were the Ethiopians against the Italians. And we can go on and on and on. But what do you think was going on during World War II? They were directly fighting against Mussolini and Nazism and, and so on and so forth. And We've been fighting against fascists and white supremacists since we've been here. This is several centuries of resistance. We don't need conspiracy theories. We could just pick up a history book and see, you know, the patterns and see what our ancestors did to deal with that and, you know, proceed. It's just frustrating to see people not want to deal with reality. But I guess it's just a part of the trauma sometimes. I think that's what makes people go to the conspiracy theories. Just this past year, we've seen millions of corporate philanthropic dollars move to the Black Lives Matter accounts that were set up by the authors of the hashtag Black Lives Matter. 
but also 10 actual chapters of Black Lives Matter said that they haven't gotten any of the money and they didn't play any role in the hashtag makers' political statements or their political projects. We see that you have rejected organizing in the nonprofit sphere. Why'd you do that? Well, because I often have seen many of my own comrades fall into, let's face it, we are anti-capitalist, but we still have to have food and pay our bills and pay our rent. And many radical organizers often feel the only way they can be themselves and still be able to do some good in the community and not be taken away from organizing is to, well, hey, we'll just work for a nonprofit. But often what happens is that the mission gets watered down. They're controlled you know, by these philanthropic organizations, these basically millionaires and billionaires who really don't care about a revolution. You know, It's just a way, actually, for them to keep getting donations and getting money. And I've seen small nonprofits be able to you know, stay true to who they are. Those are usually very, very small that used to be grassroots organizations in the community and perhaps, you know, for financial purposes, they were able to turn into small nonprofits. But I've rarely seen large nonprofits not water down significantly the mission of of whatever it is, whether it's for queer and trans rights, whether it's for housing, whether it's the feminist, womanist organization, you know, the bigger the structure gets and and the more the corporations get involved and the grants start coming in. It's just part of the nonprofit industrial complex, and that's not revolutionary. That's not what's going to get us to what we need, because we need to overturn these systems and these structures that are often hand-in-hand with the corporations. Here in Baltimore, there are many organizations that are nonprofit, and many of them do good work. Some of the larger ones are basically hoarding money and resources that smaller groups, grassroots groups, neighborhood groups, you know, small organizations desperately need, but also would be able to utilize it even better because we know the community. We are the community. We are not being sent to a city and dropped there just to open up an office for this large giant of a corporate name. We're part of the community. We're part of the solution. And so we see nonprofits basically helping to gentrify and control communities just like corporations and other entities. So we're not really fans of the large uh, nonprofit models. Smaller nonprofits, you know, we understand, but the large ones, they tend to not really be efficient for the liberation of black, brown, indigenous people. So yes. We steer clear from that. Yes, in that vein, we saw this past year the largest demonstrations in the history of the United States involving tens of millions of people, and certainly that made an impression. But you tend to organize on a much smaller scale. Yes, we will take place. You know, I've been organizing for 30 years. I've been in lots of marches, sit-ins, protests, boycotts, strikes. <laughs> to be honest, uh, those who know me in Washington, D.C., when it comes to white supremacist groups like the ones that did the right or just even breached the Capitol building, Richard Spencer, the Matthew Heimbach, comrades that I've been associated with and I've been around with, we've even got into self-defense situations in the middle of the streets of Washington, D.C., trying to protect our communities from white supremacists. So we tend to do things in affinity groups or smaller groups, 
to be able to be as efficient as possible, but within the frame of organizing with other organizations. And that's what, again, Food Clothing Resistance Collective Maroon Movement, that has been our methodology for the past five years. So when we go out and we feed people, we connect with other groups and we're feeding a large amount of people. When we go out to protest, we're not just going out with a few people so that we can just be destroyed by the police or destroyed by white supremacists or whatever group that we're counter-protesting so that we have greater numbers and and merge ourselves within the neighborhood groups and the grassroots, because we are grassroots. And it isn't just about us, and it's not about us having all the answers and having all the solutions. It's about connecting with other people, because together we're the ones who have the best first-hand knowledge in our communities of what's going on. So we've always put ourselves in the center of utilizing and working with other groups while staying small. But overall, we know that it's going to take millions of us to push and organize, and uh, we aren't against mass organizing at all. We just come from a small group perspective of uniting with other people. And you are a hip-hop artist. Uh, How does that impact on your organizing work? Yes, I've been a part of a great organization called the Zulu Union, which established themselves in 2017. We are based around the globe. We are former members of the Universal Zulu Nation who left as a result of the corruption that had happened within that organization and the abuse from the head of the organization, worldwide known DJ, an influencer, and one of the founders of the hip-hop culture, Africa Bambata. Our goal is to not leave the work behind that was done of organizing and stopping squabbles and mediation and community building and community outreach through the hip-hop medium of the five elements of hip-hop, emceeing, DJing, b-boying, graffiti, and knowledge. We still use those principles while making sure that, unlike in the past, There is no top-to-bottom abuse. We are a horizontal, structured organization. We're a union of just different hip-hop community organizations. And it helps make it easier to make decisions and to come together collectively. We're we're trying to change what the hip-hop organization looks like so that we can prevent abuse, making it more open, making women be more centered, the youth be more centered, just a more egalitarian model of organizing I've been emceeing for many years, and hip-hop education is a great way to bring the youth into more radical resistance and organizing. I was radicalized by Public Enemy and Boogie Down Production and groups like that that were really speaking some serious, heavy things about the structure of why we were in the predicament that we were in in our inner cities. And so I just continued that with my organizing and my own music, and so... Part of what Maroon Movement does is music and analysis, and we'll have producer battles, and we'll hold space for artists to come in and perform and be able to speak, and but also link them into mutual aid and link them into direct action. And so it's just another way of using culture as a means of resistance, and it's fun. You know, I've found that it's been able to reach people actually around the globe, and I've been very blessed that people actually want to hear what I have to say, I think, half the time, because (laughs) I put things together in rhymes over beats, and it's been a successful formula. And my current EP is called Trap Liberation Army. That's on Bandcamp, but I am working on some new products and some new projects. 
and they will be coming out soon and right on time because we need a really revolutionary soundtrack right now in the streets and you know while we're cooking meals and, and boxing up items to get to our comrades i think it's important to have that freedom music that was ebony Seema Lee Outlaw, speaking from Baltimore. A prominent black writer and social critic based in Europe has produced a new book with a tantalizing title. Mina Salami is a public intellectual of Nigerian, Finnish, and Swedish descent. Her latest work is titled Sensuous Knowledge, a Black Feminist Approach for Everyone. We reached Salami in the United Kingdom. Her book treats sensuous knowledge as a deeply political subject. Yes. So I make the distinction between sensual and sensuous. And the I put it this way, because of the phrase sensuous knowledge came to me before the fully developed idea of my book came to me. And so during the process of writing the book, I read hundreds of definitions of the word, so whether it was, you know, the word sensuous being used in in essays or dictionary definitions or definitions by thinkers coming from varying backgrounds. And eventually I came to like the phrase even more than I did initially, precisely because it is quite a slippery term. It's, it's, It's very fluid. It has been used by people like Karl Marx. He developed the theory around sensuous, he called it also sensuous knowledge, which is something that I learned about only some months ago after the book was out. And then also going back to the originator of of the word sensuous, who was the poet John Milton. And he coined the term sensuous because he wanted to avoid the sexual connotations in the word sensual. And he used it to describe his genre, which is poetry. So in a sense, Sensuous knowledge is poetic knowledge, but poetic knowledge is a little bit too, it's focused on language. So when you say poetic knowledge, you immediately think about a knowledge format that has to do with language and narrative. And that is certainly something that I like and that my book is about. But my book also, as you point to, has a really strong social and political context as well. And so The word sensuous is, as I say, I like it because it can be discussed. It has, you know, layers uh, of meaning to it. But I guess the way that I might describe it best is, or the way that I see the word sensuous is best described by books at large. So books are sensuous because they're objects that can affect us on a mind, body and spirit level, if you like, whereas the word sensual only affects us on a physical bodily level. And so books can affect us physically because we, we can, they're tangible. We can touch them. We see them. They have a particular smell, especially when they're newly printed. They also affect us mentally, of course. They provide us with new information, with new stories, and so on. And then they also, you could argue, affect us spiritually, in the sense that they can fundamentally change how we behave in the world or how we look at the world or how we look at our relationships. And so they convey this notion of sensuousness best. And so when I apply this to knowledge, I'm thinking of, I'm I'm approaching epistemology as something that can affect us in that way, 
holy, as you said, or as you read from the book, and not just on a surface level, whether it is to do with statistics or kind of surveyable diagnostics or even rational and logical thought, but, but a, a kind of knowledge approach that incorporates all of these things combined. Well, how did you feel when you found that you shared a terminology with Karl Marx, the father of <laughs> dialectical materialism? I felt in awe. I haven't read lots of Karl Marx, but of course I know what he, he stands for, and I'm very much influenced by socialist movements around the world. And so I, I guess I found that there's, there's a kind of meaningful and beautiful serendipity maybe that that I should employ that term as the title of my book furthermore. I haven't had a chance yet to, to fully delve into his theory of sensuous knowledge but some of the stuff that I've read is actually like the similarities between what he was the way he was defining it and how I define it in my book so yeah I guess it, there is some, some level of, of validation there in my thought process to have someone like I've spoken about this centuries ago. And maybe you share with Marx a desire not just to sense the world, but to change it. Absolutely. Um, so, Sensuous Knowledge, is, it's, it's a book that is, and a concept that is striving toward many things. It's kind of a utopia and a manifesto in, in many ways. So in that sense, yes, it's interested in changing the world but it's also because of the the relationship to the poetic to poetic knowledge it's also a book that is about social imaginaries and narrative and language and sort of re-envisioning how we talk about changing the world i tried intentionally to write it in a way that was that creates gestalt which is a psychoanalytic term that i borrow in a socio-political context, but because so much of when it comes to changing the world has to do with images and symbols. So we, we kind of need to be able to envision and to speak about a world that we want. And it's not something that we can only do analytically or even structurally. And so, so I intentionally wanted to write the book with, I mean, the, the, very, the very ethos of sensuous knowledge is is to interweave worlds and bring worlds that are not typically in conversation with each other into conversation with each other. And so the algorithm is a kind of fusion between the symbolic and the measurable, um, almost, if you like. And in order to do that, I see it as borrowing and utilizing different disciplines. So at its core, it's a, it's a Black feminist, idea. It's based on Black feminist lineages and theory and activism. But it is, again, you know, it's also a kind of an artwork approach in terms of the poetic and the linguistic. And you seem to be saying that one cannot even speak about or conceive the kind of world that one wants or should want because of the hegemony of Euro- patriarchal knowledge. Exactly. So the notion of sensuous knowledge that I'm describing is in conversation and in critique of what I refer to as Europatriarchal knowledge. And it's a weird thing because in, in trying to, 
to really um, describe sensuous knowledge, I, I always struggle a little bit, which is funny because that's you know the title of my book and what it's about. But it, it has to do with the slippery notion of the concept, which I already spoke about, but also because there is a need to, to peel back a few layers in order to really get to the, the core of what needs to be done. So maybe a few steps back to respond to your question. When we look at all of the, the kind of major issues that our world faces today, whether it is global warming or imperialism, poverty, war, class, race, sex division, at the core of all of these issues is a relationship crisis or several crises in relationships. And the reason that we have these crises in relationships, which basically means that there's crisis in how we relate, not only with each other, but also with ourselves and with our environment, with the natural world. And the reason that there are these crises is because of the very knowledge structure that we use to build our cultures, our institutions, and our societies. And this approach to knowledge, this, this epistemic approach, is one that is, it is fragmenting. It is based on hierarchies, on binaries, on divisiveness. And this is the epistemic approach that I refer to as Europatriarchal knowledge. And I conceived of sensuous knowledge as a kind of direct response to that, because I recognize in myself and in the activist movements that I am involved with, predominantly the Black feminist, African feminist, the Black liberation movement, that we obviously we spend a lot of time speaking to how we change structures and institutions. And we need to do that. That's really important. But in my view, we also have to go even further than that and change the very... So basically what I'm saying is that we don't merely need more insight, more knowledge, more information, or new, new types of knowledge. We need a fundamentally different way that we approach knowledge. And it has to, because the crisis of relationship is what is creating these problems that we're battling against, the alternative or the healing structure approach to knowledge has to be one that heals relationships. And so at the part of sensuous knowledge is that it is an approach to knowing that can heal our relationship with ourselves, with each other, and with the natural world. And that is why it is about interweaving and bringing into conversation, so it's interdisciplinary, bringing worlds that very rarely are connected, you know, art and science, storytelling and academia, emotional intelligence and rational thinking, and so on, because it's when we bring those worlds together that we start to, to create new types of conversations and also that we start to mend relationships that have been fragmented. And the more that we mend our relationships, the more that our institutions and structures ultimately can change because our institutions and our culture is, is, is built on relationships. What you're talking about enabling conversations that lead to real changes in relationships of power, aren't you? Yes. I mean, we typically do operate and do center our institutions and our culture 
on a power on, a, on an interpretation and an institutionalization of power that again goes back to the Euro patriarchal knowledge approach. But what I'm arguing in my book is that actually power even doesn't have to be defined in this way. And that is where, you know, it's going back to the imaginative, the social imaginary, because power is something that we have been taught to think about in particular ways that replicate the structures of power. And if we, if we want to change the structures of power, then we have to reimagine how we think about power in the first place. So it's really calling for a fundamental rethink. But also, my hope is that because it's written in a way that is graspable, that it doesn't feel like it's an unsurmountable task. Because I think quite often when we say, oh, we need a fundamental rethink, there's a sense that, oh, that's too utopian and that cannot happen. But through examples and through the language and the, the structure of the book, my hope is to show that it isn't unsurmountable. These are things that, you know, they can start on an individual level and then they ripple into, into the collective. And in fact, history shows that it is something that, that we've been doing. It's just that we don't really, uh, especially those of us who are minoritized and who experience oppression from multiple intersections and angles, we share lack of resources and energy and time and all of those things that, that we've had to fight so hard for aren't always able to give language to the thing that we are actually doing. Um, and so this book is in many ways about doing that. It's looking at the Black and African feminist work and lineage and history and culture uh, in particular. And then, of course, also adding my voice and my philosophical worldviews to that. But it's not inventing something new in as much as it is giving language to desires of social and political nature that already exist and that have existed for a long time. You write that you think of sensuous knowledge as a kind of magical nonfiction. Magical nonfiction is not a reassuring term uh, to folks of a Marxist persuasion. No, I think that's why I like it. Not to, not to annoy folks of a Marxist persuasion, but because there's a contradiction there. So put it this way, it is, once again, your patriarchal knowledge or what others have called, you know, a kind of hyper-rational way of knowing or the scientific approach or enlightenment thinking that continues to this day. It is part of that legacy to separate non-fiction from fiction. And I'm not saying that there isn't, you know, there are, sort of objective truths and there's storytelling that is completely fictional, fictionalized, of course. But this very clear-cut binary and divide between the two genres is not something that really exists where I come from and the way that I was raised. You know, the mythical had space in the factual and vice versa. And so when I say magic nonfiction, I'm not saying that I'm fabricating anything. I'm claiming for it to be true, but rather that I'm saying that in describing facts about our society, realities in our society, I'm simultaneously also employing a language that is imaginative and that feels hopefully exciting to read and has a story-like quality so that it can impact us in a 
on a deeper level because human species have always been drawn to, to stories. So it's more of the quality and, and the sensibility rather than, of course, all of the facts, the, the numbers, the historical figures are very real. And, you know, to my knowledge and to my greatest effort, there is nothing that, that is misrepresented in the book as fact when it is in fact. Well, tell us about some political movements or schools of thought, past or present, that have been animated by sensuous knowledge. Oh, that's a great question. I mean, for one, the black feminist movement in so many of the definitive and the iconic works and movements within black feminism, um, whether it is the literature or the films or the art pieces or the activism, there has always been a strong emphasis on language, on, on imagination, on, on playfulness, and on, on the body. And this uh, has in part to do with the exclusion of Black women from, from neuropatriarchal spaces, but also from what I would call Afro-patriarchal spaces. So not in, just in patriarchal societies, not being allowed to contribute to, to leading societies, to shaping societies and making decisions. So women's social and political desires have always had to be, or black women more specifically, have always had to be shaped outside of the dogmatic and the normative. And therefore, within the, the kind of the liminal and the fugitive and the imaginative. So I would say that the entire black feminist movement has many or is in itself even an example of sensuous knowledge. But more specifically, you know, if you think of the works of the big icons of Black feminism, Toni Morrison, Alice Walker, Winnie Madikizela Mandela, like there's so many, um, in their work, there's this quality constantly of bringing in the mind, body, and spirit into the resistance movement. You've been listening to the Black Agenda Report on the Progressive Radio Network. Information for liberation.